On Cinema Smorgasbord presents How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, we discuss the life and film career of the always unique character actor Steve Buscemi. On this episode, we're talking about the big screen version of the George A. Romero-produced horror anthology series Tales from the Dark Side. It's 1990's Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. Welcome to How Do You Do, Fellow Kids. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the Crypt Keeper, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm okay, Doug. (laughs) 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 Let's do the whole episode in our Crypt Keeper voices. (laughs) Well, Douglas. (laughs) No, I don't really have a good... (laughs) It's weird. Why am I not a voice actor? You'd think I would have been a voice actor by now. Yeah, I know, right? You should Um, do uh, audiobooks. That's what people would love. Yeah. I'm pretty good, Doug. I, I recently had a, a massive surgery, and the actual surgery place where they cut my whole friggin' head open is fine. Sure. But my throat is still sore from the tube in your throat. You know. They, oh my goodness. They you. Yeah, it's still sore. I'm like, how long is that going to take to heal? I don't. I don't like that. How long did the surgery take? Uh, the actual surgery was probably an hour and a half. But you know they you got to show up way ahead of time for prep, and then there's an hour and a half afterwards for recovery. So it was about four to five hours out of my day. Uh, but it's definitely like a get in get out procedure. Um, although, like anytime you're intubated, it's not like when you're waking up, you're like, "Well, I'm ready to face the world." <laughs> yeah, you know? right. When they were like, "Yeah, we're gonna wheel you out of here," I wasn't like, "No, I'm too strong for a wheelchair." I was like, "Yes, please, put me in the chair. Thank you." Liam, it's interesting that since the last time that we recorded, yeah. we've both been through a little bit of an experience. Sure. Um, and in fact, it, listeners probably don't know that it's actually been two weeks since we've recorded together, which is a pretty long time for us not to record. Right. Uh, and I have not recorded anything because I've been unable to record because, Liam, get this, I caught the coronavirus. <laughs> you got that vid, man. You got that covid uh, it, it, I managed to make it this far into the whole epidemic without getting it. And then my wife went to Toronto once and she brought it back and she's like, Doug, you're going to be fucked up for a while. <laughs> and that's how it played out. And it was uh, like my voice, I was in a state, like you might be able to hear it in my voice still, but it, uh, this is the strongest I've felt, uh, for a very long time. Um, and it's, sure. uh. If I had to rec- make a recommendation, it would be to not get it. But I know that right now it seems like everybody we know is getting it and are uh, dealing with it. So hopefully everyone has as easy a time as I have had with it. And even in that easiness, it uh, there was a struggle involved. Oh, but, man. Uh, like my, my, my daughter Maeve has been sick. And we were like, oh, no, the COVID. But right. uh, it was just strep throat. And that's the world that we're in when strep that's right, throat of course. is good news. <laughs> The funny so. thing for me, and maybe it's not funny, is so my wife went to Toronto, came back, uh, was not feeling that great the next day, and she tested positive. And of course, she came home and we slept in the same bed, of course, as as couples generally do. Um, and uh, for one night, and then she tested positive the next day, and I'm like, okay, 
I'm going to sleep on the couch and hope to hell I don't get it. She was wearing a mask inside our apartment. I mean, we were not being near each other. And then every day my throat got sore and sore, but every day I tested not positive. And then on the Friday of that week, it was just like, you're positive. I'm like, fuck. Right. I mean, like, there's just no way to avoid it in those situations. No, there's not. I mean, there are tips on like how to avoid, how to uh, isolate at home. But sure. I don't know anyone who's been able to do it personally. But I was already, I think I was already too late even when I started. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's like, probably what, true. Why, why, why did I sleep on this fucking couch? <laughs> there's no reason <laughs> for it. <laughs> but Liam, we're not here to talk about either of our uh, m- m- uh, uh, medical state. Um, we did miss a day. Uh, a week, I should say, of Cinema Smorgasbord on the website, which is, again, something that has never really happened before. It actually wasn't solely because of my um, illness. The other thing that happened was there was a massive power outage throughout Ontario, where I live, and uh, it affected thousands and thousands of homes. And it just happened to be at the time when I was planning on editing our Paul Bartell podcast, our uh, Bartell Me Something Good, which has now already come out, thankfully. Uh, but I did want to point out right at the beginning of the show that during that week where we didn't have a Cinema Smorgasbord podcast, it thankfully coincided with the Horror Movie Survival Guide podcast, which is, of course, hosted by uh, our Jodowski co-host, Julia Marchesi. Uh, and we appeared on it to talk about Death Dream, a.k.a. Dead of Night from 1974, and also talk about how we started podcasting together. So I think uh, fans of Cinema Smorgasbord, people who would listen to this show generally, would probably enjoy that. So uh, check out the Horror Movie Survival Guide. You can find that linked on all of our I, general social media. Yes. I also think it's worth a listen to hear you say suggest that I might be smart, which was like, I think a surprise for everybody. <laughs> well, I was out of character on that one. I was trying to be sure. as sincere yeah, no, as that's possible. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about any of those things or how smart you are, Liam. We're here to talk about the great Steve Buscemi today. We are going to talk in a little bit about Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. But before we get to that, there's been a lot of articles over the last couple of months about Steve Buscemi, as there generally is. That's one of the nice things about this particular show compared to some of our other actor-specific shows is that there's always new news with Steve Buscemi uh, because he's still a very beloved and working actor. I thought you would find this interesting. This is an article from faroutmagazine.co.uk, and I have to say, it must be so difficult to have to write content every single day. Yeah. This particular piece of content is not new at all. It's Steve Buscemi names his favorite albums of all time, this is a uh, someone found a Ask Me Anything Reddit thread where Steve Buscemi has been answering questions, and basically is just turning that into a series of articles. That that thread is from 2015, and they're just like cranking out all of his answers as separate articles. It's Jesus, that's crazy! Isn't that something else? But that's the way things work, uh, Liam. This is about Steve Buscemi's favorite albums. I know you're a music guy, sure, and I thought you specifically would be uh, interested in what he had to say. Uh, the funny thing is this article doesn't just, like, give his answer from the Reddit uh, thread. It just lists, hey, here's his three albums that he said he enjoyed listening to. Uh, I'm going to read it in Steve Sammy's voice since I imagine how these things work is you have some sort of assistant and they're like, some idiot asked you this question. And then he just answers it and someone just types up what he says. Um, it's hard to picture Steve Sammy sitting at a keyboard being like, I'm going to rah, rah, because this is sort of in his voice. Someone asked him what his favorite albums were. He says, um... That's just like we would. Um, I love Elvis Costello, and I think one album that I go back to of his is Get Happy. But he's done a lot of amazing work over the years. Same with Tom Waits, you know? Mule Variations is an incredible album, as is all of his work. 
I'll always go back to Abbey Road, even though I haven't listened to it fully in years. So three albums there, uh, Liam. Get Happy by Elvis Costello, Mule Variations by Tom Waits, and Abbey Road by The Beatles. Your thoughts on Steve Buscemi's favorite albums? I mean, it's sort of predictable, right? Like, uh... <clears throat> So uh, recently I was talking to someone about how there's this, uh, there's this sort of like generation we don't talk about, supposedly, between boomers and gen x you know that right. there's actually this like group of people and it's sort of his age i guess you could also say he's uh a uh uh geriatric gen x maybe sure. um but if you were like hey here's an artsy white man from new york you know sort of uh not quite boomer but you know early gen x at best what music do you think he'd like i if i was a, if i had my druthers i would say these three records like yeah. that's this is very much with you know an Elvis Costello record, but probably not the first record. Any Tom Waits record, but you know probably a later one because that's when he got real artsy. And then of course the Beatles of some kind. Uh, Abbey Road, I guess, is a little bit of a surprise because I I keep seeing it. Just seems like a lot of people in the last few years just want you to know that their favorite Beatles record is is the White Album. You know, and uh, that's fine. I don't I don't care enough about the Beatles to have like a opinion about which is your favorite album i do i care about the beatles and i have an opinion about it well all i'm saying is a lot of people <laughs> i've seen hype up hype up the white album recently so it's nice to see someone say abbey road which i haven't seen said as well much. i mean i mean let's remember this is from 2015 <laughs> that's true that's true that's true oh but but again it's like everyone has to say the beatles right it, it's like there, there's it, it's sort of like a standard thing that's like okay what do i like well i like you know uh i don't know pr- pr- proto-punk artsy guy who does uh, operas now guy who's also uh, a pretty good actor and has a fun voice and used to talk about a lot of prostitution and then of course the Beatles like that's <laughs> it that, that's how you describe Tom Waits <laughs> I mean I'm not a big fan I will say friend of the show Josh Alvarez is like a pretty good fan and I have friends who are a pretty good fan for me with Tom Waits there's always songs like there are tracks where I'm like oh that's an amazing song but I don't have a record of his where I'm like I love this record all the way through. There just isn't one for me right now. Granted, there might be one I just haven't heard yet because there's a lot of material there. Uh, but that you know, that's always the problem with some of these artists is like when when it's like I'm gonna get into blah 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 and they have like thirty some records. It's like yes, where do you even start if you're not familiar? You know, like at least I've heard probably like five or six of his records, but they're all from the same era. I mm-hmm. certainly like this record that uh, Steve Buscemi mentions is from 1999. So like. I know if there's a 1999 Tom Waits record, I haven't heard it. Like, that's just not – and that's not a judgment on Tom Waits. I just know, like, the records I've heard are always the, like, more, like, uh, sort of classic records. And even then, I don't know them the way that – you know, I know people who could quote Tom Waits off the top of their head. And I'm like, yeah, there's a couple if, of tracks. If they I'm were like. quoting Tom Waits, what would, what would it sound like? Well, hopefully they're not doing the voice. That Although was... they – I think they would be doing the voice. What would that sound like? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I hate you, Doug. I recently watched a uh, Tom Waits concert film from 1988 called Big Time, um, and uh, it was v- it's very interesting. It's very uniquely filmed. There's almost like these kind of sketches in between uh, the songs, which is actually the least my least favorite way of doing a concert album. But of course, Tom Waits is going to do what he's going to do. Uh, but it gave me a, a kind of a better appreciation for him as a performer. I mean, I know that he has a defined image anyway. 
but he, he like really has a kind of cultivated way that he performs and like everything is part of it. But the f- funny thing about Tom Waits is my first experience with him was not as a musician, though I guess sort of it was, but it was his performance in, in Jim Jarmusch's Down by Law, um, which, by the way, another I mean, Steve Buscemi obviously has direct connections with Tom Waits in a lot of different ways, but uh, certainly a Jim Jarmusch com- uh, connection. Well, tell me, you're you're a Beatles head. What's up with Abbey Road? Is that a is that a cool pick, or is he a a Beatles poser? I think Abbey Road is still a cool pick. Okay, I feel like a poser pick would be Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Um, I would. A lot pick, of people like that record, Doug. A lot of people love that record. Hey, I'm not saying it's a bad record. It's the Beatles. There are no bad records. Hey, look, an opinion. Uh, but you know, to me, it's like I don't know if it's still cool to say Revolver is your favorite Beatles album. Um, it was years ago. Uh, my favorite Beatles album is Rubber Soul. I think that's still that one is. I don't know. I mean, I do think Abbey Road is a normie pick, but it's also the high end of the normie picks. I mean, look, I I don't have a strong opinion. I've listened to all the records. The only ones I've ever put on for funsies are Revolver and the White album, um, and even then, I just don't. It's fine. It's all good. Put it on. I love it. It's great. But I don't care. I don't care. I just can't care. I'm sorry. <laughs> Liam, you might care about this. On the website Looper.com, they recently ranked all of Sibusemi's movies, sorta, from worst to best. Uh, actually, it wasn't even close to all of his films, uh, but certainly all of his more well-known movies were ranked in this list. It's actually one of two lists just in the last month that are listing Sibusemi movies from best to worst. Uh, this one was a little bit more detailed than the other one that I found. Uh, but uh, I'm not going to go through the entire list for obvious reasons. But the top five Steve Buscemi movies of all time. Let's get your thoughts on this, Liam. Top five are number five, The Death of Stalin, which we've covered on this very show. Number four, Monsters, Inc. Number three, Ghost World. Number two, Reservoir Dogs. And number one, Fargo. Actually, we've only covered one of those movies <laughs> on this Steve Buscemi-based podcast so far. What do you think about this list, Liam? Well, uh... I don't love Monsters, Inc. like that. I think it's fine, but it bums me out to see it this high on the list. And the inclusion of Ghost World uh, is great. I love that movie. But uh, I don't know. I I really wish, uh, honestly, if we're talking about top five for me, Doug, I'd sneak Trees Lounge in there, to be quite honest. And maybe that's that's a a pandering to the man himself on my part, but I I just would. Um, It actually, on the other list that I I found of the, uh, the same topic... Trees Lounge was number one. Yeah, I don't know if I would put it number one, but it's in my top five for sure. For, sh- for sure. Uh, and then I, you know, all the rest of those choices are fine. Like Desa Stalin is great; he has a strong role in it. Uh, Reservoir Dogs is iconic, so it's got to be pretty high up there. I love Fargo. I love his performance in Fargo. But I don't know. I mean, part of the for me, the goal of our show here is to highlight some of the movies that maybe should be in that top five, but aren't, you know? So I, you know, I, I don't have a a top five off the top of my head ready to go, but I don't think I would put Monsters, Inc. in there or even Ghost World, even though I love Ghost World, I don't feel like it's, I don't feel like his performance in that movie is one of his best performances. So I guess that's not the list. I guess they're ranking the movies on their own, but for me, I would want the top five to be, not just movies I love, but performances of his I love. And that's just not in my top five. I should mention that In the Soup, which we also covered in this uh, podcast, yeah. was ranked at number six. So just out of the top five. Oh, okay. That's a pretty good spot for that, I think. Liam, I already mentioned Far Out Magazine and how they just take 
<laughs> information that is already in the ether and turn it into articles. This is another article about Steve Buscemi. Uh, revisit the moment Steve Buscemi sang on a Lou Reed album. We're back into music once again. Liam, what are your thoughts on Lou Reed of the Velvet Underground? I'm very familiar with the Velvet Underground, and I'm not familiar with his solo material at all, though I did see him live before he passed away, and that was a fun show, but it was, you know, it wasn't as good as maybe it could have been for my taste, because it was right when that uh, Raven album came out, Yes, and some of the songs of that are bad, and so he was still a cool performer, and I didn't... I liked being there, but I wasn't like in awe the way I would be if I could have seen him do more of his older songs and more Velvet Underground stuff. Though he did do those songs, just not a lot of them, you know. He was a prickly gentleman, I heard. Oh, yeah. The vibe I get is that he's, <laughs> I mean, even that Velvet Underground documentary does not, it's not a love story for him, that's for sure. I don't, I don't think. <laughs> Liam, I'm glad that you brought up The Raven because that's what this very article is about. The Raven is an album based on an opera called Poetry, which was inspired by the prose and poetry of the vastly influential American literary pioneer Edgar Allan Poe. In an interview, Reed was asked about the impossibility of conducting such an adaptation of Poe, and he claimed he knew it was the case all along. He said, Not only did I think that, but the corollary thought... This is a can't-win situation. On one hand, you've mauled the classic and butchered it and made it barbaric, or you've put everybody to sleep and you've mauled the classic. But the other way of thinking about it was amazing, fun. <laughs> Did you find it amazing, fun when you saw him live? Um, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> uh, so there's a song in it featuring Steve Buscemi. I'm guessing he didn't bring out Steve Buscemi to perform that song with him <laughs> on the uh, when you uh, saw him live. <laughs> no, that would have been great. So there's a song on this album called Broadway Song. Liam, let's listen to a little bit of it right here. I like to sing you a Broadway song. I hope that you'll all sing along. A little dancing and some sentiment to put your mind at ease. And uh, that song, as you heard, features Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi and Lou Reed together at last. What do you think about that? I mean, it certainly fits. You know, I, I imagine them meeting at a party or something. You know what I'm saying? But uh, I don't, you know, that's just not for me. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about actors or musicians whose reputation is that they're kind of an asshole? Ooh. You like that? I mean, it really depends on the person, right? Sure. Like, okay. Uh, I think for a long time, and I don't know if this is true as much anymore, but it probably is, um, any attractive woman in Hollywood was known as a horrible person if yes. they had any dignity at all. Sure. Like if they That's stuck up, Yeah, if they stuck <laughs> up for themselves in any way, then they were insufferable. Whereas men who were literal abusers were badass and authentic, you know. Uh, in fact, you, you might remember there's an actor who gave us the name of one of our other podcasts, uh, one Mister uh, Mickey Rourke, and I was uh-huh. just I was just listening to uh, the episode of um, You Must Remember This discussing nine and a half weeks and uh, what a notorious abuser Mickey Rourke is. So that's fun to know. Uh, which I kind of knew, but it's different hearing the act. It's one thing to get a vibe and kind of know something, and then sure. it's another to hear actual testimony of him being a monster, you know? So uh, anyways, uh, I, I, 
if someone if 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 the vibe is they're difficult to work with because they're frustrating or they're demanding, right. that in and of itself isn't enough for me. But a lot of times when you dig under the surface, sometimes what they're talking about is actual abuse, both emotional yeah, and physical. That's a problem, and I don't know why we write it off so much. Um, I mean, I get it in some cases, like you know that 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 historically. There was a time where if an actor was a complete monster, it, it, there was like a mystique to that, and it's yeah, it's like an Oliver their... Reed thing. Like we talked about that. On yeah, our yeah, exactly, exactly. So, or recently, uh, I'm I'm I'll be watching the movie Crawl Space uh, for uh, horror business, and uh, there's a short film by the director of Crawl Space about how awful Klaus Kinski was to him. It's called uh, Kill Klaus, Please. <laughs> which is apparently something that people on set actually said to the director. I mean, I got to be honest, uh, and this is not a defense of Klaus Kinski whatsoever. By the point that he made that movie, which I think was like 1983. Yeah. I mean, you knew that. I mean, you know what you're getting. What the fuck are you doing? Oh, no, totally, totally. It's just <laughs> they didn't know how far it was going to go per se. Sure. And uh, at a certain point, he was so difficult that the uh, – executive producer who was an Italian filmmaker suggested without irony or as a joke that they should hire someone to kill Klaus Kinski because the distributor wouldn't let them make the movie without Klaus Kinski. So they were right. like, well, they can't do that if we if we have him killed. Then like they can't make us have him in the movie. And that wasn't a joke. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, but again, you're right, though. The man's whole vibe is that he's abusive. Like, that's the whole point of Klaus Kinski as a person. So, like, you got to know what you're getting into going in at the same time. Uh, and, and I'm sure that's true of some of these other people. And, again, it's hard to know because we have the veil of history. I'm sure some people that were described as monsters to work with were actually just alcoholics and never yeah, actually right? exactly. hurt anyone. But there were probably lots of people who was like, oh, he's difficult. And it's like, no, he's a sadist. Like that's you know, it's it, there's a big difference between abuse and being difficult. And I think now it might, it may or may not be easier to know that. But when we look back at history, it's really hard to know which is which. Was yeah, this was this person cranky, or did they hurt people, or or were they cranky, or did they have undiagnosed mental illness? Right. Also I mean, true. One hundred percent. Also true. Yeah. But I do have to say that when I hear this, maybe I'm overreaching a little bit. But, I mean, all of what you said is absolutely the case. But when I hear about a celebrity who whose reputation or has been t- – people say that you're not allowed to look them in the eyes. To me, that's like, what is what is going on? You are not a fucking king of, yeah. of some goddamn country. That to me is like – it's like how could you even say that out loud without thinking that you're being the worst person in the world? Well, and I'm sure there's people who said that who said it because they actually had deep anxiety. But again, the other thing I always get at is I'm never convinced that for every human being on the planet, there's only one career. So if like the only way you could be an actor is if no one on set looks you in the eye, you need a different career, my buddy. Like you got to do something else with your life. And I'm, I guess that's sad for you, but it's, it's less sad than all the people who are not looking at your face. Anyway, speaking of actors or uh, performers that you can't look in the eye, uh, I want to wish Ellen DeGeneres a happy retirement. (laughs) (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) But we're not here to talk about Ellen DeGeneres, sadly. We're here to talk about the great Steve Buscemi, Liam. Let us take a break. When we return, we're going to be talking about 1990s Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. Stephen King. Originator of Pet Cemetery. 
Arthur Conan Doyle, author of Sherlock Holmes. Michael McDowell, creator of Beetlejuice. George Romero, director of Night of the Living Dead. Now, these four masters of everlasting horror bring to the screen four tales of overwhelming terror. I warned them, but they wouldn't listen. Tales of diabolical fate. You promised you'd never die! Tales of ghastly revenge. Grow, O light. Rise, O light. Come forth, O light. Open his eyes. Tales of ruthless evil. That cat has killed three people in this household. I don't believe this. Kill it, bury it, and bring me its tail. Tales from the dark side. A young boy tells three stories of horror to distract a witch who plans to eat him. It's 1990's Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, directed by John Harrison. I don't know a lot about John Harrison, but he worked very closely with George Romero. Uh, so he basically was was trained by George Romero, even though he started out as doing music for Creepshow and Day of the Dead. I mean, he turned that into a very kind of long-standing directing career, probably best known for... His uh, TV adaptations of the Dune novels. I know you're a big fan of Dune. The, uh -huh. Those sci-fi channel uh, Dune movies from, uh, uh, I guess, early 2000s. He was deeply involved with that. And I guess he also has a producing credit on the recent Dune as well. Probably because of some sort of rights issue. This is a portmanteau, Liam. A collection of shorts uh, with a framing story in it. Those three stories are... Uh, I'll do them, actually, in the order that they appear in it. It's Lot 249, written by Michael McDowell, based on a short story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, Cat from Hell, written by George A. Romero, the great George Romero, based on a short story by Stephen King. And then we finish up with Lover's Vow, written by Michael McDowell, based on an original work. Michael McDowell, the writer of Beetlejuice, The Nightmare Before Christmas, and Stephen King's Thinner. So, a lot of DNA that probably fans of genre cinema would recognize, particularly with the Creepshow series. That makes sense, since George A. Romero was the producer of the television show Tales from the Dark Side. Liam, I want to start today... Before we get into what you think of this movie, what was your experience? I think we actually have talked about this on other podcasts, but uh, what was your experience with Tales from the Dark Side and other anthology uh, television series of that time period? Well, that was the one for me. I watched other ones. Like We actually sure. talked about this a little bit when we were discussing Amazing Stories. That's um, right, of course, on our podcast. Uh, I mean, something good. And I like Amazing Stories, but Amazing Stories was... Not as important to me as Tales from the Dark Side. Uh, I watched some of Monsters. I am far less familiar with Tales from the Crypt because I didn't have HBO right. when that was on. Though I did manage to catch, like, they would have compilation videos and then later compilation DVDs. Mm -hmm. So I did see some of Tales from the Crypt. But it's, you know, Tales from the Dark Side was syndicated. It played on TV all the time from when I was, like, really young, like, you know, uh, I, like, what year was Tales from the Dark Side the TV show out? Was that 83? Uh, no, I think it was a little later than that. I know okay. it was it was running up until 87 at the very least. Okay. Well, regardless, I was watching it at a pretty young age and pretty entranced by it. And it, part of that was the regularity of it and living in a time when, you know, we just had to watch what was on TV. Well, there was nothing more interesting than Tales from the Dark Side syndicated when, I, when it was on TV. So I watched it religiously. And I was too young to know that it was kind of cheap. 
You know what I mean? Like revisiting certain episodes. Some of them are like really poorly put together, you know, budget wise. Right. Uh, Even if the story's good, sometimes the special effects are terrible or the, the, just the, just the overall like, uh, 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 quality of, of the setting and costumes and everything. Absolutely. And yet, you know, when I'm seven, I don't fucking think about that. I'm eight. I'm not thinking about that. I'm just like, oh, the spooky thing is on. I mean, I used to watch religiously reruns of uh, Dark Shadows. It's not exactly a high budget affair. You know what I mean? Uh, I just liked it because it had monster stuff in it. That That's all it was, you know? Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I will say that when this movie came out in 1990, uh, I didn't see it in the theater. But I was so excited to see it on home video. And as much as I have watched it a bunch of times because it was on cable a lot, whatever, I will say my first experience of it was slight disappointment only because I loved the show so much. In retrospect, I think the movie is actually a pretty good representation of the show. Uh, not not perfect, but pretty good. How but do you mean? How do you mean that it's a, a good representation of the show? Because I think the the parts of the movie that are a little disappointing. I think the show was also a little disappointing. It's just sure. in 1990, I was 11, and I had begun an obsession with horror movies. Uh, when the show was on TV, uh, uh you know, uh, in syndication, I was a little bit younger, and I had just started to get into horror stuff, so I was less familiar. Um, also, I thought that the movie would up the ante, and it would get more upsetting than the show could ever be, right? Mm-hmm. And and that doesn't happen, actually. I don't think, yeah. other than one scene in the one story I don't like that is kind of upsettingly gross, otherwise the movie is almost entirely appropriate for TV, which is probably why it was on TV constantly <laughs> throughout the 90s. Just all the 90s, it could be on, you could find it on TV. It is a little strange, especially because by 1990, I believe, Tales from the Crypt, would have already been on television. And like Tales from the Crypt in a lot of ways has sort of eclipsed Tales from the Dark Side because it a had a much higher budget. It had yeah. all of this kind of like Hollywood uh like big wigs behind it. Yeah, you Robert Zemeckis and Walter Hill, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh and then you had famous people in every episode, which I know that you had famous actors in in Tales from the Dark Side as well, but they tended to be a little bigger. It's a slicker production. And also, the big one is because it was on HBO, it could have real violence and real nudity and that's something that tales from the dark side always had to struggle with but that idea of adapting short horror stories in a lot of cases uh well in the in the case of tales from the dark side i feel like that has more potential than strictly adapting old ec comics uh but still the vibe is all meant to be coming from the same place i think the first time i saw tales from the dark side the movie i was a little disappointed because it has so many great uh, there's so much in its DNA that I was a big fan of. I mean, it did feel like it would be the next edition of Creeps, Creep Show. So that's George A. Romero involved. He's adapting Stephen King. You have all these great actors, kind of almost like cult actors as well, with Deborah, Deborah Harry is in this. Um, and David Johansson, of course, the great Buster Poindexter is in this. We'll talk about all this in a second. But I think I went into it thinking it was going to be a little bit more hardcore rather than like you said, it just feels like a slightly bigger budgeted version of the TV series, which is really what it was meant to be. Now, with all that said, I want to get your thoughts. As an, and now a older gentleman in the year 2022, what do you think of Tales from the Dark Side, the movie? I, I've I've watched it so many times, it's really hard for me because it's in my DNA. But I also don't think it's great. Like, I would never... if Let's say we're like making a list of the greatest anthology films of all time. Sure. This doesn't crack the top five, I don't think, which is saying something because a lot of anthology films are bad. Uh, 
But a lot there's a lot worse than this, by the way. <laughs> I, I think that's the other thing though. I know how bad it can get, and this is for the most part charming. In fact, the one story, we'll get to ranking them, but the one story I don't like is the middle story. And it's still watchable. I still made sure. it through it. I wasn't like, oh, this fucking shit. It's just it's just not as good for me. On the other hand, my favorite story, the the final story of the group, um, it's not so memorable that I would be like, you have to see it. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, and yeah. There are parts of Tales from the Hood that I'm like, you could take this out and show it as a short film, and I'd be like, you have to see it. It's, it's great. Right, right, right. Uh, and that none of these reach that level. But is it entirely enjoyable? I think it's almost entirely enjoyable. Um, I think it's kind of goofy, but I appreciate that. I think it should ramp up the gore, and it doesn't, except for again one part that is really upsetting. And uh, and that's it. And uh, you know, it's fun in a lot of ways. And I gotta say, like that last story, I bet there are modern watchers of this if you've never seen it before that'll think that last story is super corny, just a right. total cornball fest. I still get emotion. It was one of the first things that made me emotional when I was a kid. Huh. Interesting. I was Does like, it- I can't believe he said something. And like, I don't think I cried, but I got like upset in a way that like, you know, I hadn't been upset by something. I mean, maybe like Rats of Nim might have got me a little upset, but you know what I mean? Like, or I guess the movie was Secrets, Secrets of Nim, but you know what I mean? Like I, this was the first like live action thing I can remember being like. Oh man, that's really sad. I think I'm really sad now. And you know, uh, granted, it wasn't long from that where I started watching like utterly depressing cinema. But at eleven, <laughs> that was the first thing I saw that was like really sad. The other thing that maybe caused me a little disappointment when I saw this for the first time is that K and B does the effects, and they uh, also with the help of Dick Smith, the legendary Dick Smith, uh, the uh, the special effects artist. And it's just like, so I expected this to be like a hardcore gore fest, but it really isn't, though it does have some impressive moments, which we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, my thoughts of it are, uh, on this movie are very similar to yours. Um, until Tales from the Crypt decided that you could make a movie version of your TV series and just make it its own story, like one long story, <laughs> I think that this would be how you would think you would adapt something like this, that it would be basically another uh, edition of Creepshow. And I do wonder what the re- the reception of this would have been if they released it as Creepshow 3, as opposed to Tales from um, the Dark Side, the movie. Uh, I did not grow up with Tales from the Dark Side. Um, and, and I didn't grow up with Tales from the Crypt either. I think I told this story on Twitter recently, but in the 90s, the CBC here in Canada would show Tales from the Crypt but it would be an edited-for-TV version that cut out all the violence and nudity, which, hey, I got to be honest, I don't want to be uh, d- discount the quality of filmmaking that goes on and all the talent behind Tales from the Crypt, but if you're going to cut out those two things, might as well not even show it. Might as well not even put it yeah. on television. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But I did still have a lot of fun with Tales from the Dark Side, mostly because even when I wasn't totally engaged with one of these segments, they're just a half hour. It's, it's like the big benefit of an anthology movie. It's just like, well, I'm not loving this, but it, the next thing will be along soon, and then that next thing would have like a whole new crew of actors that I recognized and a lot of cases liked. So it was a lot of fun. I do think it's ordered wrong. I mean, I'm glad that it ends with Lover's Vow, but it kind of feels to me like Cat from Hell should be first because um, I think that yeah. the pacing of it would feel a little bit yeah, better I agree. that way. Um, but let's go into to ranking what your favorite and least favorite segments are. I think we can already almost work it out from what you've already said, Liam. But just to remind the listener, there is a wraparound story featuring Deborah Harry trying to... Uh, cook Joey Lawrence's little brother Matthew Lawrence, and that is basically just an excuse to kind of get into the stories. And then we have—I I, got to—I got to say mm-hmm. that moment 
is got to be so good for anyone playing um, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon or any like movie related game. The fact that there is a straight up long scene with Debbie Harry and Matthew Lawrence really opens up your 90s possibilities with connecting <laughs> different actors. <laughs> Uh, three segments in the movie itself are Lot forty, uh, sorry, Lot 249, which is like a mummy movie. That's a segment that features Steve Buscemi. Then we have Cat from Hell with uh, Buster Poindexter, David Johansson for the New York Dolls, and William Hickey. That's the adaptation of the Stephen King story. And then it ends with Lover's Vow featuring James Remar and Ray Don Chong. Liam, rank them top to bottom. Include the wraparound story. I got to go Lover's Val the most. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, I get that for some people it's, it's going to be too corny, but I love it. I also love the bleak, drunken artist New York City that he's like, – Yes, absolutely. Where, wherever he's at in that in that story doesn't exist anymore. It literally doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So I love that part of it. Yeah, just everything about it really appeals to me. Then Lot 249, it, it's fun. Again, uh, well, I didn't say this recording. I'll let the listener know now. I've never been a big mummy person, and I suspect sure. that seeing this movie so young probably didn't help with that because uh, Christian Slater does away with this mummy – in a way that makes you think bubbies are dumb. <laughs> like, it's so quick and so easy. Now, granted, the scene is great, and Christian Slater is like actually really menacing in that scene yeah. in a way mm-hmm. that like I was almost surprised by. He's kind of, he's cold blooded, right? That yeah, 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 yeah. And so I really like that. Uh, and it works because then the ending in which. Uh, there's a zinger from our man uh, Buscemi is that much more justified because sure. you've seen Christian Slater go from kind of nice to kind of a monster. So that's great. Um, and then I actually, I know it's dumb, but I'll take the wraparound story over Cat from Hell, quite honestly, uh, because I just think Cat from Hell, it's already not a great story. Like I'll even go back to the original Stephen King story, though I don't remember what book it's in. Do you remember where the Stephen King story is from? It's not Skeleton Crew. I know that. So I'm not 100% yeah, it sure. It might be Monkey Shots. I don't know. Anyways, I remember a story like this from Stephen King and not thinking it was very good. This, I think, is worse. And I think the issue is if this is going to work, it needs to be longer. But the thing itself is so boring, it can't justify being longer. So like, right. what I mean by that for people who, for whatever reason, haven't seen it, the, there needs to be a slow escalation from – The cat has scratched a hitman to the cat is murdering the hitman. That needs to be a slow burn. But they only have so much time. So really, it feels like within 20 minutes of meeting the hitman, the cat is crawling into the mouth of the hitman. Now, this is the one moment of gore in the whole movie that actually is gross to me. I don't think anything else is gross in the movie. Even when when, uh, Ray Dong Chong at the end turns back into the gremlin it's it's gooey but it's not gross but the cat crawling into buster poindexter's mouth is a fucking nightmare it's still a nightmare it's always been a nightmare it's pretty great (laughs) but nothing else in the short justifies how good that moment is even the idea that it's happening because the cat goes so quickly from i scratched your hand i scratched your face i really scratched up your dick oh and now i'm in your mouth (laughs) It's just it just doesn't fucking work. No. And like and and you know, I get that we're supposed to be really creeped out at the part where he tries to shoot the cat and he misses because he never misses. The buildup's not fucking there, man. It's just no. there's not enough stuff there to justify the thing. On the other hand, what is there is so like for me, boring that I don't want there to be more of it. I wouldn't want to watch a full length version of this fucking thing, but no. without that time, this story doesn't make sense. I don't know if you can tell this story in a way that would be good, to be honest. Uh, I just, 
like even the stuff with William Hickey explaining why the cat has to die and going into the flashbacks, like none of that is very good either. No, it's all boring. It's basically that song, The Cat Came Back, except in a movie form. Yeah, uh, and yeah, then yeah. it ends with this, honestly, unearned gore moment of this cat climbing into the guy's mouth because it doesn't really make any sense. Uh, I could see this working better as a short story because you can picture it in a way that doesn't look goofy and silly. But I'm with you. It, it definitely was the one that I enjoyed the least. I will say that I wanted more out of the wraparound story as well. Maybe it's just because it's so simplistic. It's like, oh, it's a person who seems nice, a regular woman in a neighborhood, but she's actually a witch who wants to cook this child for other witches. Um, and, and the coda on it, like the way it all wraps up, it just feels a little too neat to me. Um, but I also, I think Lover's Vow is by far the superior story in this. So I like Lot 249 quite a bit. Lot 249, even though it's based on an Arthur Conan Doyle story, it really does have that Tales from the Crypt feel. Where I agree, I agree. Where, you know, where it's just like, you know, uh, so someone who's bad or evil getting their comeuppance in this sort of ironic way, especially that ending, which feels very much like something from Creepshow. Oh, Show. so good though. Lover's Vow also has sort of a Tales from the Crypt vibe to it, but the very fact that it's so sad yeah. makes it not feel like that, but it also yeah. gives it a weight that I think makes it very superior. Let's just go through I, that. that I, pl- pl- oh, so yeah, please. Really quick, I also want to suggest that uh, one of the stronger performances in my mind from James Remar, who is sometimes good and sometimes bad. Like, I just think he's a very up and down uh, actor. 100%, and I would think he would be miscast in this, because it doesn't seem like the kind of role that he would be good at playing this kind of tortured artist. But yeah, especially when things go well for him, that doesn't seem... He he seems like a lot more believable as someone where things are just going badly for him all the time. Yeah. Um. That, so what happens in that story is that James Remar is an artist. He's been dumped by his agent. Things are going very badly. And then he... Uh, after the bar sh- uh, closes for the night, the bartender is killed uh, very quickly by some sort of uh, golem or a gargoyle. The gargoyle appears to James Remar, says it will not kill him as long as he never tells anyone that he saw the gargoyle or that he spoke to them. And then uh, later that same night, he runs into Radon Chong, who basically is this amazing woman that he falls for immediately. They spend the night together. She basically turns his entire life around, connects him to uh, this art gallery. He becomes a very popular, famous artist. And then the movie, which, by the way, even now takes me by surprise, it skips 10 years into the future where, you know what? Anyone listening to this probably can tell where this is all going at this point. But uh, what happens is he he tells the the secret to his wife now. uh, They have two children. He tells the secret that he saw this gargoyle. And we, of course, discover that she was the gargoyle all along. And there is actually a pretty terrific transformation scene that occurs, even if the gargoyle itself looks a pretty uh, little silly. But it's not only that she changes, but it's that she's really sad about the fact that she has to change because she does love him. And they have two kids who also change in their gargoyles at the same time. And it, you're right. Describing it makes it sound silly, but it is done very well in the context of the movie. Well, yeah, because you believe in their relationship. That yeah. the first thing it does successfully is make you care about their relationship. The second thing it does is, um, I don't know about you, Doug, but for me, from the first time I saw it, I fucking knew she was the gargoyle. I knew from, of course, from every time. Of course you did. <laughs> and so the fucking dread, the fucking feeling of dread when he gets this look on his face like, there's one thing I can give you. That is actually what makes it a horror story is like, you know, oh, fuck, he's going to tell her. Oh, no, he's going to tell her. It is like 
just horrifying. And and there's some part of me, at least, I don't know about you, Doug, that suspects that in a different story, something else might happen there. She'd go, oh, I'm so glad you were honest with me, or I'm so glad. <laughs> but in this fucking story, it's like, well, you ruined it all, didn't you, you fucking idiot? You know? I think it also preys on a really a very real fear, which is that you love somebody and you're in a relationship with them, like an extended period, but you have a secret about your past that you don't want to tell them and you worry that, I mean, this is like the worst possible reaction to it. But you know, in a real life situation, it could be you tell the person this thing and they never look at you the same way again or it hurts your relationship or something like that. To me, like that, I like that there's a real anxiety built into this horror story. Yeah, I agree. It, it really, um, it really connects to something that I think a lot of people feel and I know I have felt myself. So it's just a, yeah, and, and I don't want to praise it too hard. It is kind of I, – I don't think people would be wrong to say it's silly. But if yeah. you if you resonate with it, it works. And I actually think the effects on the gargoyle are surprisingly good considering I don't think the movie has amazing special effects overall. Yeah, though I think it's because with the names involved, I expected generally the special effects to be better. Like even, like even the mummy in Lot 249 is – okay looking but it's nothing special you know yeah i don't know I, I i just expected a little more from it i want to ask you though so tom savini says that this is creep show three that that in its dna it basically is the third creep show movie a i want to ask you are you a fan of the creep show franchise and b would you accept this as a third creep show movie huh that's a good question um I only really like the first creep show. I've seen the second creep show. I haven't really felt any need to return to it. Well, we uh, will at some point on our George Kennedy podcast. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Um, so I don't feel strong feelings about that. It honestly, I, the only reason that doesn't resonate for me, Doug, is because um, Tales from the Dark Side, in and of itself, is such a strong cultural moment that I sure. just see this as an extension of that. And inserting yeah. creep show is like inserting something else into it that feels different. You know what's funny is that I had a false memory about Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, in that I was convinced that there is a segment in this in which Christopher Lloyd appears and gets his head cut off. And do you know what, what that, I, that I'm actually referencing with that? What? It, it's, a, it's an episode of Amazing Stories. Where that oh, exact same yes, thing happens. Yes, 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 and yes, my yes. brain was like, oh, that's the one that Steve Buscemi's in. He's in the one where Christopher Lloyd gets his head cut off. Completely different series, completely different tone and everything. Um, I'm, I'm with you. I don't like Creepshow 2. Uh, I, even the best uh, – I think everyone agrees that the raft is the best section of it. I think it's fine. I don't think – even the best segment of Creepshow 2 – I think is not as good as the worst segment in Creepshow One. So I, d I don't see like the the fact that people, some people, in fact, some people we've even had on our very podcast uh, prefer Creepshow Two to Creepshow One. To me, that is absolute madness. Um, but uh, but I mean, this is if we think of the series as being as good as Creepshow Two, then yeah, this fits in with it, right? It it, it has that sort of inconsistency. But I just feel like. That series, if you can call it that, is a great movie and then lesser stuff afterwards. You know, it, it doesn't it doesn't fit together as a series. I mean, now that there's a television uh, revival of Creepshow that um, that is also very inconsistent. Now, I, I don't know if the, the bloom is off the rose in terms of the whole Creepshow brand 
at this point. I do want to ask you as well, they were a couple of years ago trying to bring back Tales from the Dark Side. Joe Hill, the son of uh, Stephen King, was trying to take hold of it. Unfortunately, the CW, which was going to put it on, passed on the pilot, and then they turned the three scripts that existed into comic books, I believe, uh, uh, instead. you have any interest in a revival of Tales from the Dark Side? I guess it just depends on who's doing it. I, I have lots of interest in a anthology horror series that's good right uh and we've gotten versions of that that aren't different episodes or different stories we've gotten more each season is a different story i'm thinking like channel zero or something like that or yeah i mean we are in sort of a modern revival of of anthology television but i don't think we've hit any that have been like consistently great yet like that twilight zone reboot wasn't consistently great Uh, Uh, i mean it's just it's like I don't know why we can't do it. You know, they, uh, M. Night Shyamalan was going to do uh, a new Tales from the Crypt, which I think also got sunk. I don't know if that's still c- coming or not. It just feels like, and of course, the new Creepshow series, newer Creepshow series. It just feels like it's really hard to make a consistently good. My feeling on it, Doug, is that um, there was a moment where there was so much burgeoning talent in horror that there's a huge field of people to choose from to like direct certain episodes and there's a certain amount of money and prestige in it and now doing it feels like an exercise in nostalgia and not an opportunity for somebody yeah maybe it's because there are the trappings of the pre-exist pre-existing series like if you're going to do tales from the crypt you sort of have to do it in that ec comic style but when we see an anthology movie like a vhs uh 94 which we just recently saw um i mean that's good that has a lot of modern horror talent Involved with it, it seems like you could still do those stories. You just need to give a little bit more artistic but I think freedom. Producing there. producing a movie like that and producing a TV show, I would assume, are very different. You know, I would I mean? think. I mean, I I might be entirely wrong on this. I'd figure that tales, a new tales from the crypt series made for HBO, would have much higher. Uh, like like it would you would actually have a lot more money to work with to do something like that. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I I honestly don't know, Doug. I find the whole thing kind of confusing. I mean, uh, to be fair, I didn't I don't watch the Creep Show one, right? Yeah. Uh other modern anthology like uh, what's that Apartment 214 on HBO. Yeah, yeah. That's supposedly really great. I've never watched it. You know what I mean? Like I I clearly am not the audience for this. I assume I would watch a new Tales from the Dark Side. Probably the only anthology I've watched and I haven't even finished it yet is the Love, Death, and Robots one, right. which, which I think is really good and really well done. But there's a reason you only get a new volume of those every like four years because it's, yeah. it's animation. It takes a long time to do. Liam, Lot 249 is based on a story by Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, it is – it in in the context of this movie, it has almost a reanimator-ish vibe. I don't know if you really uh, picked up on that. At least the Steve Buscemi character to me felt a little Herbert Westy. But it's a mummy story. Uh, Steve Buscemi plays a, a, a nerdy college student who has been screwed out of this uh, award. Uh, to get his revenge, he has purchased a mummy and he's going to send it to do his bidding and uh, chaos ensues. Uh, this segment also features, as you mentioned, Christian Slater, also a young Julianne Moore in this, uh, m- maybe making this the most star-studded of the, the stories involved. First, before we, we talk about this in a little more detail and the performance of Steve Buscemi, what are your thoughts on mummies, Liam? Are you a mummy guy? Oh, I already suggested. I'm not. Yeah, I know mummies. you're not. But why? Why don't you like mummies? They're just zombies, right? Oh, uh, no, they're not. No, okay. <laughs> I mean, I guess they are. It, the whole vibe, I mean, 
I think as an adult, I'm more open to the idea, and I and I have actually thought that I should revisit some mummy movies to really get what is the what is the creepy vibe? What is it about mummies that are that is haunting? But one reanimated dead person who can barely move, and you can kind of hear them coming. I don't. I just don't know what it is I'm supposed to be afraid of for the most part. Uh, and this, like I said, when I was a kid, this segment doesn't help. Right? It makes it seem a little lame, kind of cool at times, but also a little lame. So I, I don't know. I, I, I guess, uh, I guess I should be a little more into the mu- uh, into the idea of the mummy since I am the generation when the mummy came out. The, uh, the fucking uh, <laughs> the Brendan Fraser Brendan Fraser mummy. mummy. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, I, I mean, it's funny because we're talking, we're clearly talking about the the universal monster and and different iterations thereof right i I know a ton of people doug for whom if i say the mummy they only think of brendan fraser the idea that we (laughs) think of anything else is like crazy talk to them i mean there's probably a reason that when that brendan fraser version of the mummy came out that they did not lean on the horror aspect it's more of a adventure movie that has mummies as kind of the background i I'm, i'm sort of with you the idea of a shambling dead creature is it can still be frightening, but it does kind of necessitate either one of two things. One, that it has to be super strong, which is what they do in this movie to a certain extent. Um, or B, uh, that it has to be basically unkillable. But that's not the case in this at all. It's actually surprisingly easy to kill this mummy. Um, but... Otherwise, it's like a single zombie as opposed to a horde of zombies. And a single zombie, you know, it, it, it's not as scary as 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 a giant group of them all kind of uh, coming at you at once. So yeah, I, I I'm I'm with you. It doesn't really do a lot for me. I do like the vision of a zombie, like like the idea of all the wrappings and stuff like that. Um, but I think I think I like it more in theory than in practice. Um, so overall, your thoughts on Lot 249 is a segment in this. Uh, I know that you don't like it the best of it, but uh, what are your thoughts of it? Uh, Steve Buscemi sells it. Steve Buscemi and Julianne Moore. Uh, Christian Slater's fine. He has that moment when he's killing the mummy that's really menacing and fun. Mm-hmm. But uh, Steve Buscemi is this, you know, kind of egotistical, kind of shitty, but also kind of like put upon by his fellow students because he's yeah. poor. He sells it. He sells it, and you really believe him. The moment in the cab where he's like, oh, he can't tell the difference between a blah, a blah, or a boo, a boo. It's like, <laughs> it's fucking magical. Like, I, I just, the, 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 it's not that scary. I don't love the mummy per se, but they really do their best to make the mummy attacks seem kind of menacing. Uh, I, I do find the part where he shoves flowers in Julianne Moore's back to be a little cornball. That, yeah. that was a little much for me. But overall, I just I think, think it's probably probably because she's not, She's not freaking out as much as you yeah, would think someone yeah, would. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's overall though, it's a lot of fun. And 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 it really plays that game of you don't feel for any you know, I, I don't feel for the people the mummy kills. I don't need yeah. I don't feel for Christian Slater. I don't necessarily feel for Steve Buscemi either, but he's not entirely unsympathetic in some ways. So mm-hmm. I kind of like the work that it does in that way. Uh yeah, it's fun. It's it's I agree with you, though. I don't know why you open with it unless you're going to follow with a real banger. And maybe they thought that the cat from hell was going to be like the the one. But for me, it's so obviously less compelling that mm-hmm. I really wish the Steve Buscemi one, the, the Lot 249, was the second one because I think the flow would be a lot better. Maybe it's because of the heavy hitters involved with Cat from Hell, right, with Steve, Stephen King and George Romero and it being the most direct DNA from a creep show type thing and from the TV series to a great extent. 
that's why they thought it. But yeah, no, I like I like it. I like Lot Two Forty Nine. I like how the mummy looks in it. It is. It does necessitate it kind of creeping up behind people who are not expecting it in order to make it work. Uh, but I I do like the ending in particular. This may shock you, listener, but uh, Steve Buscemi does get his comeuppance on the people who wronged him uh, in a uh, semi-ironic way at the very end. I do like also that Christian Slater, he isn't sympathetic, but he's not totally unsympathetic Agreed. either. Um, he's a character that even though he's presented as like jock adjacent at the beginning, which is kind of funny when you think of all the roles that Christian Slater has has done in his career. But here he's very much like the reason he wants to get his own revenge on Steve Buscemi's character is basically because Steve Buscemi's character was involved in the death of his best friend and his sister. So, of course, he's going to have to do something about it. But, yeah, I like the way that it all plays out. It's a lot of fun. Um, it is certainly, I think, the one that's – it's the one that feels – the most modern in a, in, in a certain way. Uh, it's the one that it would be the easiest sell, I think, to a modern horror fan. Uh, but like you, Steve Buscemi, I think it's terrific. He, he's never... This is a weird thing to say because this is a Steve Buscemi podcast and we wouldn't have this unless we were a fan of him as an actor. But I do have to say, even compared to other performers that we focused on on different podcasts... He's always good, you know? He's just yeah, he's just always yeah. seems to bring it no matter what. And he did it even when he was very young. He just he, the, the maybe it's because he has a very easily defined persona in the kind of roles that he does, but like here he is he is 100% the best actor I think in this entire anthology. <laughs> and and he does it just by being kind of Steve Buscemi-ish, except instead of leaning into being likable in this case, he's leaning into being kind of a piece of shit or a prick. And it, he he plays it absolutely perfectly. Uh, it did make me wish that we had a little bit more of Sebastian in horror films. I agree. Uh, I was thinking the same exact thing. Yeah, yeah. I think he could pull it off really well. And I know I brought up Herbert West earlier, but maybe just while I was thinking it, maybe the fact that it takes place on a university campus and all that. But I could have seen him taking like the that Jeffrey Combs type roles. At that time period, uh, he's probably glad that he took the, not that there's anything wrong with Jeffrey Combs' career, but he's probably glad that instead he became a mainstream, huge Hollywood actor, as opposed to having to work in genre films for the rest of his career. Uh, Liam, any final thoughts on Tales from the Dark Side, the movie? Uh, Now's the time, right? I think that there's a history in horror of uh, later career mainstream actors pivoting to horror. Now, granted, usually they do that because they don't have a career, and Steve Buscemi still does great. He still gets yeah. paid to do stuff whenever he wants. So he doesn't need to pivot to horror, but I would suggest it would be fun if he did it. Now, I know you don't like it, Liam, when I spring other things for you to watch Uh-oh. at the last minute. I'm not doing it now, but I was going to do it on this episode. because And, and probably some people listening have already remember this. Steve Buscemi was in an episode of Tales from the Crypt. He and was. in fact... It was, if I remember correctly, the first episode of Tales from the Crypt I ever saw. And I saw it specifically because I, as a teenager, was a huge fan of the musical group The Who, Liam. And the lead singer of The Who, Roger Daltrey, was in an episode of Tales from the Crypt with Steve Buscemi. And I intentionally uh, seeked it out so I could watch it. And it was also one of the episodes that I saw... That had all the sex and, and violence removed from it on the CBC. So I didn't understand the appeal. But yes, there's an episode called uh, Forever Ambergris. It, it's from 1993 featuring Steve Buscemi and Roger Daltrey. Uh, Paul Dooley, of course, a great, hilarious Paul Dooley's in this. And so is a young Titus uh, Titus Welliver, uh, star-studded episode of Tales from the Crypt from 1993. 
it is something we should probably watch at some point in the future. But I just find it interesting that at this young point in Steve Buscemi's career, he was in Tales from the Dark Side, the series, and then he ended up, honestly, when he was more established in an episode of Tales from the Crypt. See, you're fucking up here, Doug, because if we're going to open that door, then what I'm going to say is we need to watch the episode of Monsters he was in in 1990 before this came out, which is like far more significant to me because I actually watched the show Monsters when it was on TV. Uh, well, uh, at some point, I guess we are are going to have to watch both. I, we'll we'll make an effort to maybe the next time that we do have a horror adjacent uh, Steve Buscemi movie. I don't know how many of them there are. I mean, obviously the dead don't die, but I'm, that that might take a while to get to. We'll uh, we'll we'll work in those two episodes as well. But for now, uh, in regards, I mean, my final thoughts on Tales from the Dark Side is that it's fun, but it's not memorable. You know, there's yeah. nothing here that's blow away. It just needed one thing, I think, that 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 really stuck with me. Lover's Vow, of course, is the closest. But even that, it does feel like kind of a better than average Tales from the Crypt episode as opposed to, you know, a great segment of an anthology horror movie. Yeah, I agree. I think um, I think the movie overall is a little unimpressive, but I'll still watch it into the future. This won't be the last time I watch this movie. Liam, on the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, I have picked a movie for us, sort of randomly. Um, one of the reasons I picked it, it's from 2010. It's called Pete Smalls is Dead, featuring Peter Dinklage in the lead. But one of the leads is also Mark Boone Jr., someone that uh, Steve Buscemi basically his entire career is linked to. Something that we uh, have seen him already in a number of the movies that we've covered. This, from 2010, directed by Alexander Rockwell. I don't know anything about Pete Smalls' Dead, Liam. Do you have any uh, knowledge of this movie? None whatsoever. I have to admit, I expect that Steve Buscemi's part in this might be rather small. But it's still... I remember when it came out in the sense that I heard about this movie sort of in uh, uh, like a festival circuits thing. I don't think anyone remembers it at this point. But be that as it may, on the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, 2010's Pete Smalls is Dead. Are you excited? So excited. <laughs> you just love watching Mark Boone Jr. on screen, I think. Um, actually, I've seen other Alexander Rockwell movies, and so I'm kind of... What are they? Well, I'm looking right now because I was like, why does that sound familiar? I, I saw Sweet Thing last year and thought it was great. Okay. Um, now, hold on a second. Did he do a segment in Four Rooms? Yes, he did. Uh, but he directed in the soup, right, which is right. why we probably would be. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's he's given credit for being one of the people who launched the careers of Steve Buscemi. Um, actually, I think mostly from in the soup. But I mean, we're I think we both liked in the soup quite a bit. Why not return to the career of Alexander Rockwell with a more recent film? Uh, I think I already mentioned this is from 2010. Pete Smalls is dead. And I'm a big Peter Dinklage fan. Peter Dinklage also has a link to the career of Steve Buscemi because he's in Living in Oblivion, I believe. So uh, lots of uh, lots of connections here. Well, to the and and it, it gives me an opportunity to recommend People See Sweet Thing that came out in 2020. Nobody saw it. It's very good. Very good. Well, maybe we can check that out at some point in uh, some other context. Well, Steve rather... Buscemi's not in it, but yeah. Hey, Steve Buscemi doesn't have to be in every movie that we That's cover. True. That's true. <laughs> Liam, if people do want to check out episodes of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, of course, if they head to Cinebunks.com, they can check out the latest episodes of this show, all the Cinema Smorgasbord shows, and some other podcasts like Twitch of the Death Nerve, The Carnage Report, uh, and of course, the flagship uh, podcast Cinepunks, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. Uh, they can, of course, go to our website if they want to dive into the archive of not only uh, uh, this 
particular version of Cinema Smorgasbord, but all of our other shows that we do, Joe Nowowski, um, Praising Kane. Uh, uh, yeah, list them off, one, one, one by one. <laughs> <laughs> the other shows we do will suffice. Uh, and then, of course, they can follow CinePunks on social media, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And we're on Twitter, Doug, at Cinema Smorg, S-M-O-R-G. You can follow Liam on Twitter as well, at Liam Rules, that's R-U-L-Z, and I can be found on there at Doug underscore Tilly, that's T-I-L-L-E-Y. Listeners, if you are enjoying what you're hearing from the Cinema Smorgasbord group of podcasts, why don't you leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast provider of choice? Every little bit helps. I want to apologize if I feel a little off on this episode. Uh, I'm still recovering a bit from my COVID experience, but hopefully by the next episode that uh, that you hear, I'll be back to 100%. But for now, Liam, we need to take a little break from Steve Buscemi. We'll be back very soon with 2010's Pete Smalls is Dead. Night. I'd like to thank all you people for showing up tonight. Sorry about the weather. Let's have a big hand for my longtime accompanist, Manfred Gooseberry. Hey, Goose. Take a bow, relax, be comfortable, have a cocktail in the Poo Poo Lounge, and let us entertain you. I like to sing you a Broadway song. I hope that you'll all sing along. A little dancing and some sentiment to put your mind at ease. I like to play you something low and sexy. Look at our dancers, they're so young and pretty. Hi, Olga. And when we start to groove, you can hear the saxophones play. Ah, show business, it's just a wonderful thing. All I want is to get down on my knees and sing. For you and let the saxophones blow Blow, baby, blow I like to sing you a Broadway song I hope that you'll sing along A little dancing and some sentiments Put your mind at ease I want to bring a tear to your eye.